Welcome to Good Government's podcast, Politics 101 with David Orr. Uh, I'm David Orr, and if you know nothing about me, uh, very quickly, I've served uh, elective office in Chicago and Cook County for nearly 40 years uh, as alderman from the 49th Ward, way back starting in 1979, kind of fighting the machine. Then I was Harold Washington's vice mayor, and actually after he passed away in 87, I was a mayor for a very short time. And then in 1990, I ran successfully for county clerk, uh, where I served until I retired in 2018. Today, our first po podcast in a series on the Chicago municipal elections in uh, 2023, just of course around the corner, February 28th. Um, and our focus on this uh, is basically what progressive reforms are needed to improve Chicago's future and other ways that we can use these coming elections to highlight those issues. Our guest for today um, is Scott Wagesback. Scott Wagesback is a longtime reformer. He's been alderman of the 32nd Ward since 2008. Uh, and actually he's chairman of the finance committee, which is something we kind of never heard of before because that was always Ed Burke's prerogative before he got himself in trouble. Uh, Scott is a champion of numerous progressive caucuses uh, causes, including the recent reforms of workers' compensation and many things that we can get around to talking about. Scott, uh, fortunately, is also unopposed in this election, which is uh, very good for him and puts in an easy chance to give us his two cents on things. So welcome, Scott. Uh, welcome to Politics 101. And let's start by, you know, there's so many things going on in the council, and there's not a whole lot of time before these municipal elections. What one or two maybe top priorities would you have for 2023? Uh, well, thanks for having me, David. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to be uh, talking to you, whether it's in a class that you're teaching or in the, this podcast. So um, thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, I think we accomplished a lot in this last four-year term as we kind of come to a close on it. Uh, and we'll talk a lot about those issues. But um, I think for me in 2023 and, and moving forward, I really want to work on a lot more of the climate issues, environmental issues that we have. Um, you know, we can talk about those if you want. But uh, we've this month, uh, we'll be voting on the Urban uh, Forestry Board, the advisory board that I helped put together with Open Lands and others. And um, that's really going to be a focus of mine to make sure that we're working on the tree canopy and that we have a much better direction with the Bureau of Forestry, uh, recycling, um, other issues that affect us and then our children for years to come. And then I, I think um, really working too on issues of funding for everything from affordable housing, um, lending issues through our work that we've already started on the municipal depositories uh, where we have banks hold city funds um, and then also some financial pack financial packages like uh, things that we've worked on with the mayor's office and CFO on introducing social bonds and putting out a huge tranche of money there uh, almost a couple hundred million I think to 
um, have social bonds that people can buy in the city and invest in government. So those are just a couple of things I'm thinking about. Well, let's um, um, work on those a little bit more. Okay, let's start with the last one you mentioned, the social bonds. Let's assume that the media may not always cover these things to the depth that they would like to. So tell us a little bit more about that. I assume the goal of that, of what you've been able to do, is to have more ready available money, what I call it, you know, bonds uh, to help neighborhoods and to help individuals. But tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so through the, um, you know, the social bonds uh, came out of uh, the pandemic. And, you know, the last couple, three years of this pandemic have been brutal, not only in the private sector, but obviously government. And, you know, just as a note, we get a ton of calls about the CTA. We get a ton of calls about streets and sand. And every department, every sister agency is seeing uh, people that just left during the pandemic and said, hey, I'm not going to work anymore. So, um, but one of the good things that came out of this is uh, we created the Chicago Social Bonds Program, um, where people, everyday Chicagoans, instead of just going to the banks and the, and the big underwriters, we're basically telling people in Chicago that you can uh, invest in your neighborhood, invest in affordable housing, um, you know, invest in planting trees, electric vehicles by uh, us putting a tender out there to uh, through our um, sales tax securitization corporation. It's called the STSC. And um, we borrowed through borrowing money at better interest rates because of the financial funding we've done over the last four years. We're, we're able to um, create a program where people can actually uh, literally go and be their own broker. Um, you know, you don't have to be a huge wealthy corporation to do this or somebody that's sitting on a pile of cash, but open your own brokerage account, learn about how to get a bond or buy a bond and, and invest in the city directly. Good. Okay. Well, that's clearly helpful. Uh, let's jump back. You started with the climate issues and just can briefly uh, again, tell us a little more about what you're trying to accomplish when you talk about the urban forestry board, et cetera. Yeah, I think that one, um, when we when we were looking for the urban forestry advisory board, we knew that Chicago had been suffering through this climate change, just like everybody else. Um, the city looks great, you know, but there's a lot of things happening here um, with the impact to our environment that a lot of people either maybe ignore or don't really look at um, one or didn't look at for a long time. You know, we have shoreline erosion uh, along the lakefront. We really need to invest in that and, and find ways to reduce the impact on the shoreline. Um, we, with the Urban Forestry Advisory Board, I'm not going to be on it, but, I, you know, I was happy to create it and have more experts in forestry issues and climate issues from literally from our own neighborhoods uh, that will be providing input to all the departments that deal with development and uh, of projects or places throughout the city and rebuilding the canopy, uh, you know, and you know what our motto is, Herbs and Orbis, and uh, we're supposed to be a, a very garden-like, tree-like city, and we've just seen so much damage and mismanagement of the way we handle our trees um, this 
Urban Forestry Advisory Board would hopefully uh, be a creation that uh, really tackles that issue as we face climate change. Um, and then, of course, you know, working with the mayor on issues of pollution in different neighborhoods and um, passing the clean air ordinance that really, uh, you know, needs to be strengthened over and over again, just just like the Clean Water Act, you know, from decades ago and and making sure that we we support those kind of uh, ideals for the health of our environment. Well, good. You know, speaking, uh, Scott, of the lakefront erosion, uh, two things. One, I want to remind people that uh, on our series here about the coming municipal elections, we also plan to have um, my alderman at the, at the moment, who's uh, Alderman Maria Haddon, who has uh, been fighting that battle, given Roger Spark uh, in 49th Ward is, of course, right on the lake. Um, and we're also going to have Dick Simpson. Dick Simpson, some people who are a little more knowledgeable than the past, you know, Dick Simpson was a, a leading alderman a long time ago when it was generally, you know, a handful, of best three or four aldermen taken on the Democratic machine. He has also been a professor um, of kind of politics and democracy uh, for a long, long time at University of Illinois, written several books. Um, and a lot of information about the old machine, and a lot of ideas about where we should go. So those will be two of our guests coming up. And I do remember, uh, Scott, one of my favorite pictures is when Harold Washington was alive and helping us in around 1985. We had the high water mark hit when I was Alderman at that time. It was really horrendous. And with the mayor's help, we got the... Um, you know, engineers and so forth to build those what called revetments out in the lake. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of those buildings were getting smashed and flooded and uh, the basements being destroyed. Um, the irony was, is the day he came to, to visit us, there's a little school there right on Chase Avenue in Rogers Park. It's now gone, but uh, they want to take a picture because the 87 campaign was coming up. And it was a picture of Harold and I with about 100 students. These are... Hmm you know, I don't know, a kindergarten to maybe eighth grade. And then I, I find out a few weeks later, the official campaign piece that Harold used in 87, it, you know, it, it cuts me out and half the students. It's got a beautiful <laughs> picture there with Harold and all these students. And of course, I had to give him a hard time about that. But um, okay, so let's, let's move on. But, yeah, that's, you're, you're right, though. That's a, it's an important issue, not just uh, you know, up and down the whole lakefront for the whole city, just oh. because of the the park space, the the sand, the trails, the bike trails, things like that. And I'll throw into you know we're working a lot on river edge development as well, so that mm -hmm. we treat it differently for the next hundred years to come. Yeah, and there's a lot of possibilities for for the river, as we can see. Uh, let's jump for a moment over to uh, what I kind of call democracy issues, and what I that I mean by that are. Uh, those things that kind of can weaken the democracy or strengthen it. Um, democracy, of course, in Chicago, I'm talking about, we have enough trouble nationally, but we have our own uh, difficulties right here. And so those would be things like ethics, it could get into automatic prerogative, could get into campaign finance reform, because one of the classic battles everywhere, not just in Chicago or Illinois, but across the country, is the kind of misuse of big money to often, unfortunately, determine who may be in office. And in many cases, it means that people who, frankly, don't have much of a vision of reform at all uh, happen to get elected. Let me just start with a couple things. 
Um, one is that uh, way back when I was in the city council, we passed the first limit on what businesses who, who do business with the city can give. And that was a $1,500 limit, okay? And over the years, uh, people have found ways to drive trucks through that. So an alderman, the mayor, let's stick to alderman for the moment. They can, you know, uh, let's say a local business, and it could be a big business, a small business that does business with the city. They're limited to this 1500 okay? But in many cases, that's been the abuse. The abuse where sometimes these little dinky stores have to come up with $2,500 because they're afraid of saying no to the local alderman. Um, also, when I say people can drive a truck through it, we always thought when we started this, that, okay, well, the business can give that. That's it. And now we find, well, the business gives $1,500, but then relatives and all sorts of other people do that. Um, are you in favor of us trying to tighten that? I mean, I'd love to see it reduced myself, the $1,500 reduced to maybe $750, but also to try and tighten that uh, so we don't have it kind of a, a mockery that people are sometimes collecting thousands and thousands of dollars, even though there's an alleged limit of 1500. Yeah, I think I think there's ways to tighten it up. And I, the city council did with the Board of Ethics um, make some changes that, you know, even if you were getting a zoning change, I, I think it was within six months of uh, when you're doing business with uh, or, or requesting it. Uh, I'd have to look at the specific date, but, um, you know, there's ways to continue to tighten that up. And I think aldermen, you know, even from just a few years ago, have moved in that direction, um, you know, working with different organizations to um, uh, take away, strip away some of the things that that used to happen in the city council when it came to those um, lobbying or donation type privileges. Um, so yeah, I, I think we continue to have those discussions. The good thing is we actually have the discussions on the council floor about these issues. Um, you know, working with the inspector general's office, um, we have hearings, you know, former alderman Michelle Smith really started, uh, pulling the OIG in. We had more open conversations with the board of ethics about how to tighten things. Um, so I think you're right. You know, that, um, and, and people get caught up in that quite frequently. I think the mayor just had something uh, with a donation that I think might have been within the six month time frame that they had a zoning change. But, um, you know, we just have to continue to move in that direction, I think, to tighten things up, maybe reduce the amounts uh, from 1500 to 1000 I, I would be in favor of that. Okay, I'm I'm a little more skeptical than you that um, that a majority of your colleagues would be, but uh, let me just mention because um, sometimes the best time to really push reforms and when there's competitive city council battles, uh, mm -hmm. New York has taken a, a steps in that direction where they have set stricter limits than we have on who the money can come from, and it prohibits it coming from CEOs or CFOs or senior managers. So it gets a little closer to what we had in mind uh, way back in 1987 and 88. Yeah. Um, the other thing is there's a lot of, you know, quote, negative things. But one of the best things, and I don't think people even understand that, something that always bothered me is the conflicts of interest. Uh, oh, for yeah. example, those who don't know, like Ed Burke, of course, he's 
um, you know, under indictment now, but for decades, he was the finance chairman and also got lots of money representing major airlines, major businesses, major banks, et cetera. And we always thought that was an amazing conflict of interest. Um, and that's something that you all did. Um, and I, I don't remember exactly your role in it, but I, you and the mayor and others had actually kind of closed that and no longer allow people to engage in outside income if it's a direct conflict of interest. Uh, anything about that? Yeah, we were actually the ones who, with the mayor, put that forward and, and basically said, uh, you cannot have that kind of conflict. You can't be working, A, for, for the government and working against it. I think that was the key. You can't be working for our government, uh, i.e. this, you know, this uh, jurisdiction, the city council, and then uh, work, working for or on behalf of another uh, government like Cook County. Um, you know, it really got into the weeds when we started, uh, you know, for instance, in the Committee on Finance, um, I'm constantly telling people you should disclose any matters that you have an interest in. Ed Burke was notorious for that. He would recuse himself by uh, the, you know, by the dozens every year, maybe more. And what he was doing was uh, with a wide swath of businesses and individuals, even Donald Trump's uh, Trump Tower was uh, not a, you know, first of all, he was working against government interests by uh, reducing the tax base for a lot of these people in a way that was basically what I would call insider trading, uh, knowing what was going on and knowing who was going to stamp stuff for him at the, uh, not only the assessor's office, but the board of review. Um, but now we've basically told everybody, if you pull a rule 14 where you now you have to, you know, say what that interest was, you have to actually say it on the council floor and then you have to recuse yourself from all debate. And what I used to see a lot um, before the mayor made this change with us was Ed Burke would constantly argue on behalf of a certain program or ordinance. And lo and behold, he was either getting donations or doing tax work for certain, you know, businesses or entities, um, making a profit off of it, um, while not disclosing that he actually um, was working on their behalf. So you also have to even leave the floor during debate. Yeah, and as someone who's been um, such a critic of the old ways, uh, that is an amazingly important success, and I thank you and others for it. Um, and sometimes these things come about in funny ways. Um, I was a professor for a long time before I was elected, um, actually at Mundelein College. And one of my students happened to be working at United Airlines. And when I was out there at the airport for something, I stopped by her office. And there on her desk, I saw this big stationery, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Ed Burke, chairman of finance committee. And I, said, <laughs> and I said, well, what's that? And she said, well, it's resumes. And I said, you mean resumes from Ed Burke? I said, what do you do with them? And she said, well, what do you think we do with him? He's chairman of the finance committee. So the level of corruption, it's not just the conflicts of interest, which means the taxpayers are always getting screwed one way or the other. It's that um, all these big folks, the uh, Commonwealth Edisons, the people's gases, the airlines and so forth feel like they have to give jobs, contracts, goodies, gifts, money to these powerful politicians. And yeah. so again, that's a, a great stride forward. 
let me jump to yeah uh, yeah some of it's outright corruption some of it's a soft corruption like i'm i'm sending this uh you know i'm making a phone call to the field museum i think it was you know on behalf of a former alderman's daughter and uh you know <laughs> yes. that, that came up in the burke indictment um and that those are the things that i think go so deep that most people have really no clue and i, I would say there's a, a very limited uh, handful of people who really know the depth of what he was doing and um you know perhaps that will be disclosed in part with the trial coming up, but uh, I can guarantee you that the tens of thousands of documents and um, what might be on those phone calls uh, is a is a you know treasure trove of not just the corruption that he's that Ed Burke is being charged with in the racketeering, but the as Madigan is, but the uh, soft corruption and and the types of things that were going on in the Committee on Finance that it, I have completely done away with. Yeah, and I want to remind um, many of our listeners, including lots of younger people, who often are very frustrated when we can't accomplish as much as we'd like. But I want to remind people, while there's some very good aldermen, we've never had a majority. We've never had a majority of, quote, progressive aldermen in the city council. Okay, never. Um, we may have a lot of people that call themselves that, um, but that's very questionable. Okay, so I mean, I know those those words, um, progressive and reform, get a little crazy, but that's one of the challenges that uh, you and others face. Um, often, we just don't have the votes for it. Period. Um, let me jump though to automatic prerogative. Um, you know, just um, tell us a little bit about it and how much more do we need to do. Um, let me just give you a, an introduction. Part of the problem, let's say an example with automatic prerogative, and I, I can be even more um, blunt, blunt. Part of the old deal with old man Daly, okay, for long, who, who ruled the city for so long, was I, Daly, I'm the boss. You have to vote for me. You do what I say. No questions asked. And they did. But in return, because these were some very powerful people, you know, young Verdoliak, young Burke, uh, Thomas Keene. They all wanted stuff. So in return, what uh, what old man Daly did for them was, okay, you can be king in your ward. You can do anything. Now, he didn't say you can steal people blind, but the result was that's what they did. Um, and so part of the problem with automatic prerogative would be is if you believe in uh, racial justice, for example, and certain aldermen will always oppose any affordable housing if it involves allowing blacks to move in would simply block that. So the ultimate prerogative of saying, I'm king of zoning in my ward uh, is another way of saying, we're gonna let that kind of racial uh, injustice continue. And that's just a, a kind of a more extreme example, but just bring us up to date on that, on the idea of automatic prerogative, um, the good and the bad about it. Sure, well, I think uh, automatic prerogative, if it's not abused, uh, can certainly be a good thing. and. You know, when I came in, we revamped the way we did uh, zoning and development. We put together a checklist um, that went to the community, to the community organizations, and I did it with the community organizations directly. We we were the ones together who, who built the system that I use. And over the last uh, decade plus, a lot of new aldermen have come in and said, hey, can I use your template for how you do everything from signs to um, zoning changes. And it's and it's a very transparent and open process. 
um, that keeps money out of it as well. And I think what I've what I've seen is that the mayor, you know, she wanted to come in and say, I'm taking away uh, those zoning prerogatives completely, but they don't really exist on paper. They exist in practice. And so my recommendation was, look, if we all have to follow the same process and the Department of Planning and Development uh, says, here's all the guidelines that you have to follow. So you, you literally put uh, barriers along the process where aldermen cannot, you know, go outside of those barriers. That can help do away with a lot of the uh, abuse of aldermanic prerogative. And when when you think of Burger King and Burke, you know, um, having now you have a special use for driveways. He was abusing a system that could have been in place to do away with that. So if you have good systems. And, and I'll reference New York just as you did. New York City actually does the zoning and development, uh, we'll call them guidelines and process. They don't have aldermen doing it or um, city councilors, but they do have input. So I think we, if we can all agree there's a fair process that can be built up around that, we, we can slowly chip away at the abusive nature of some of that prerogative that um, that we've seen people do. And it, okay. and it could be a good thing for things like housing, you know, like uh, Alderman voted to override Alderman Napolitano on not allowing affordable housing on a project in his area. And, and that issue keeps coming back up and again and again and again, because Aldermen are saying, well, you've opened Pandora's box. And I guess in a way they they see that as a negative but many of us see it okay it's it might be a difficult process to get over the hump on compared to the way we've been doing it for decades but maybe that's the direction we need to go okay well i think that's 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 good because most all would agree it's important that you have a certain amount of power influence within your ward to protect your your uh, citizens etc um, but on the other hand, we've seen so many abuses in the past around the, the racial zoning, around yes. the uh, permits like Burke and others, you know, using just a, as a fundraising scheme, every little thing that comes up. Uh, yeah, I think, um, and there's a good example there, like I've blocked driveways before, just in the, uh, you know, in the same way that uh, I think this Burger King issue came up. Obviously, Ed Burke used it as a, a monetary fundraising, um, you know, in an abusive way. But we've looked at things where maybe somebody in Department of Transportation was going to say, hey, uh, just go ahead and approve this driveway. And you look at it and you kind of go, guys, this is really bad for, say, pedestrians or bicyclists or something. We need to have a better process. So if you have a better process around that and there's just not a, a sort of a quick sign off, um, I think it works. But uh, the, the executive side has to be better at what they do too. The, you know, um, if all the men are saying, here's a better way to do it, then, um, you know, I'm glad to see that's the direction they're going in so that there's not a, a abuse or um, more to the side of uh, lack of understanding or management of a, a particular intersection. I know that's really a deep into the details, but it's not just the executive side saying we're going to take it and approve everything. There has to be guidelines there too. Let me um, raise a police accountability and public safety. And I realize we have limited time. And these are lots of issues, but I, I'm, it's, I, I'm, 
I don't want to be too bad like so many of like people in the media that simplify these issues. But uh, in a short amount of time, uh, what would you say on that and what, what we need to do um, immediately or at least you know, over the next year or two relating to police accountability and public safety? Well, I think the first thing is the we finally have the independent civilian oversight body moving forward. Um, I think once the the main body of people is put on it, um, you know, the the organizations that is exists right now is actually um, coming before the budget committee. They are talking about their budget, what kind of things they're going to get into. And I think that's been fantastic. Um, and we'll see that build out over the next few years um, with the advice that they would be, you know, providing to the city council, to the police department, and to the mayor. Um, we got some pretty historic FOP contract reforms, which, uh, you know, took uh, decades, but finally went through about, you know, investigation of anonymous complaints, um, can't destroy records like they used to, uh, protect people against any retaliation. Um, but there's also some other areas that we are pushing in the Committee on Finance, um, particularly uh, when we were working on the search warrant issue early on, seeing a lot of these come before us with the uh, settlements, the monthly settlements. Oh, that's so right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we push for transparency and, and openness there. And then not just saying, OK, we're going to we're going to put the facts out there, but um, holding COPA, the law department. Um, police department and other actors accountable during our meetings and really pushing them to say, okay, what happened to the officers? Where are they? What training did they get? Or did they get fired? uh, Or are they still on the force? Um, And then one area that I think we've fallen short on, and, and a lot of this really has to do with the pandemic. We, we saw a lot of people that we were putting into place to handle different issues. One of them in particular was risk, a risk management officer. And we've had a hard time building up um, that part of the city uh, executive side to manage a little bit more of all these issues uh, comprehensively. We do have somebody in there and we do include them in the settlement hearings. Um, so we really do have a more comprehensive look at uh, everybody from the individuals to the institution at the police department and how we're going to tackle some issues that um, for decades have been kind of off the books, not out in the open um, and, and brushed aside uh, for far too long. In, in case um, sometimes we, we don't make it too inside baseball, um, when Scott just referred to the oversight body that's um, moving forward, remember he's referring to this new entity that's going to ultimately be a um, civilian commission that has authority over certain police matters. And remember, everyone, besides voting for alderman, mayor, city clerk, and city treasurer on this coming uh, the 28th, there's also going to be election in every, quote, police district. There's going to be people running uh, for this district council. Okay, I believe if I got it right, three from each of the police districts will be elected and you'll start seeing names maybe you don't know where they're contacting you. That's a very, very important vote of people who, how can you say it, are level-headed about how do we um, deal with public safety and police accountability. So that, that's coming forward. 
Uh, also, when um, Scott referred to the FOP, of course, that's the Fraternal Order of Police, which is the police kind of union. Um, and part of the problem, I think, for many of us is that there's been a very right wing, you know, he makes the Matt Gates of the world look liberal almost, but a very right wing leader of that police union. Uh, the police, in my mind, are a lot better than what he stands for. Uh, but the, so that's the FOP. And um, all major cities have had extraordinarily difficult time with some of these um, moving ahead on consent decrees. But that's one of the things that are going yeah. on. Yeah, if I could make a quick note on that, David, uh, you know, when you look at the consent decrees and when you look at the arbitration over the last few decades, uh, the police always came out in a strong position on every arbitrated issue, um, on every contract they could take, you know, no matter what uh, a mayor might say. And in our case here, we, we had changes at the state level that we asked for. Um, that helped change the way we look at these FOP, this FOP contract and many others throughout the U.S. But it was really a time, I think, in the country where you saw the arbitrators, um, the people who would actually take the city's contract version of the contract and the FOP and say, hey, um, here's, here's where we're going to make some changes or allow some changes. It, it really wasn't always up to the city or to the mayor to say, uh, this is what we want, this is what we're gonna get. It was the arbitrators who for decades really drove the direction of a lot of these contracts. Let me ask you about two issues that are not, not really related, but two issues um, that you certainly had a hand in, uh, partly as chairman of the finance committee. Uh, one is workman's comp and the other is quote TIF reform. Uh, workman's comp, remember, um, that was something that Burke, Alderman Ed Burke, had total control over in his finance committee. And every mayor that tried to take it away from him couldn't. And from everything, at least I was able to look at over the years, it was enormous waste. Uh, typical of the old machine, it was ways that a lot of their friends could make money, elongate the process, make it more expensive and take longer. Um, always the taxpayers um, losing on that. Um, when Scott came as finance, and he had, he had lots and lots of staff and lots and lots of money. Uh, Scott as finance chair, you have a pittance compared to what Ed Burke did, but tell us what happened in terms of workman's comp. And then if you can, if you have any comments about quote TIF reform. Yeah, sure. So I think, um, you know, when we when we were pushing back in the last administration to get workers' comp removed, uh, John Arena, alderman at the time on the 45th Ward, uh, he and I were pushing to have the, the administration, even if it was the Emanuel administration, take over review of workers' comp because um, even though there, there were certain things done to, uh, you know, have a little bit of oversight over it. It really wasn't going anywhere that, that we felt was significantly changing workers' comp. Uh, Ed Burke controlled the doctors, the lawyers, the, the uh, locations and the employees. We weren't really sure uh, what was going on. So the, the first thing that we did was really work with the comptroller's office, Reshma Sony, to make sure that we started doing reviews. Um, what we've seen over the last uh, two to three years is a reduction in the number of claims 
they've gone back uh, by going to a company called Grant Thornton, um, outside audit agency. They are managing it at the moment, I think, until we can figure out, uh, you know, the next RFP that we have. We really wanted to get it out of the hands of the Committee on Finance and open it up um, so that everybody could see what was going on with it. We had a report uh, this in December in the committee um, to talk about, you know, the changes that have been made and, you know, where we're finding savings, but we have a long way to go on it. I think um, a lot of people, you know, feel that just getting it out of the Committee on Finance um, was helpful, but we really need to continue to move in that direction to, to clean it up and um, reduce the number of claims that the city has uh, on record, you know, or not on record, but uh, that allows people to kind of abuse that system that's been an abuse for decades. And um, how about any comments on TIF reform? Yeah, so with TIF reform, uh, you know, first of all, what we've seen is uh, we've been pushing with the administration. Clarify, excuse me, let's just uh, explain very briefly what TIFs are because they're a, another way of taxing people. So Yeah, uh, basically a TIF, um, which you were the one who really created the whole TIF transparency at, you know, at the county. Um, basically, uh, you know, TIF freezes the EAV, the, the assessed value of properties in, in different areas throughout the city. Uh, the city has over 160 TIF areas that have been created over the decades. I think since 1989 was the first one. Um, and it, it doesn't drain the coffers, but it, it prevents a lot of the taxes on those, well, maybe what they call like blighted areas when they create these TIFs. Um, it, it prevents the funds being utilized throughout the whole city. So um, TIF funds stay in that particular district. And, you know, for instance, LaSalle TIF, you can't transfer money out. If you wanted to build parks in other neighborhoods, you can't, you know, we've tried to do that. You can't move those TIF funds. Um, they can port through other districts, but in reality, they're kind of spent just in the immediate area of, uh, of where they were created. Um, but what we have done is um, in the Committee on Finance, we've really um, had more hearings on how TIF is used. Um, I think politically, my position on it is that TIF should not be used to uh, for entities that in any way block or restrict a woman's um, reproductive health care or right to choose. And we've we've pushed back on on those kind of entities getting TIF funds. But it, what we're really trying to do is make sure that TIF funds as much as possible are spent on public uh, concerns like schools and parks and um, construction or infrastructure issues that, that we're seeing. So we've really seen in the last two to three years just a shift over to from more use in the private sector and private developments. Um, you know, even in places like the 78 or or um, Lincoln Yards to really, you know, scrutinizing how the funds could be used there and saying, um, we really need to focus on our public entities like parks and schools. And <laughs> another thing that's happened, again, because, um, again, politically, uh, it, a lot of cities do this because it's a, it's a way for cities to create this pot of gold and people don't understand it. Okay, they don't understand 
Um, so we're raising hundreds of millions of dollars. It used to be when I was doing this uh, annually, maybe 500 million or maybe $600 million uh, came from these many, many tiffs we have around the city and people didn't quite understand it. Um, and so you can understand why mayors are hesitant to give up that that whole kitty because people fight crazy over maybe a $35 million property tax increase, but they're not quite aware what's going on with the 500 million that goes to TIFFs. So at least one of the things that now actually Daly did before he left office, Rama's done, Lori Lightfoot has done, is come up in some cases with over $200 million of TIF money, like pulling it from things that are not as necessary, closing them early and plow that in um, which helps reduce everybody else's uh, taxes in some way. Yeah, um, the, the surplus. And, and we've used the surplus pretty significantly over the last three to four years um, and really directed it back into the corporate uh, fund, you know, to close those budget gaps. And that, that kind of gives you a little bit of proof of how the system's uh, wrongly skewed. Yeah, anything, like, of course, that's related to taxes, um, given... Um, even though um, now in the city council, we have both a finance committee and a budget committee, uh, but you've, you've been involved in all these things. Any, any comments about the property tax in general and what's happened and what's going to happen this particular year? Well, uh, I would say the first thing, you know, um, getting somebody into the board of review like Samantha Steele, who understands how tax assessments work. I think that's uh, one of the most important steps that we can see uh, take place. And, you know, you have George Cardenas, a uh, former council member, city council member who retired this year to move over to the board of review. You really hope that, uh, you know, those two public officials can help reform the property tax system at that level. So, um, you know, we all get our tax bills. Our properties are assessed by Fritz Kage, the, the Cook County Assessor. He's trying to take years and years of outright corruption, mismanagement, um, and just lack of, of clarity on property taxes or, or incompetence on property taxes. And he's been trying to fix the system. Whoever doesn't get what they want through the assessor can then go obviously appeal at the board of review. And that's where we saw a lot of, uh, you know, uh, commentary and, and investigations by the, F I believe the FBI into corruption there. And of course you can go to PTEL after that. But I think for people who are listening, we really need to revamp the entire property tax system. Um, I would have liked to have seen the the state get that uh, graduated income tax or the progressive income tax so that it could hopefully ease the burden away from the property tax system. We can't just outright cut them both off. I mean, everything has to go through uh, the General Assembly. Um, you can't just break the legs off the whole institution and expect it to work the right way. So um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I, I think at the, you know, working with Fritz Kage, working with the new members of the board of review, working with the tax officials in city government, you know, and this entails cutting off people like Ed Burke from abusing the system where instead of Burke, uh, Burke having um, uh, worked on Trump's, Trump's towers, taxes, you know, and reducing them from 
10 million, almost 10 million, I think it was in one year down to 3 million. So the guy pays 9 million over a three year period instead of close to 30 million. Right. We'll, we'll guess who picks up the bill. All, all the residents and other businesses throughout the city who got screwed by Ed Burke helping out Donald Trump on his tax bill. That is a huge number just on one property. And if you think about what Madigan and Burke, two people out of many, many attorneys who were insiders at the assessor's office and then at the Board of Appeals for years and years and years, it's it is why people are extremely upset right now about seeing their bills, tax bills go up. And, you know, we hear it every day. How can I appeal? How can I, you know, get out of this situation? Well, I think what it's done is that it, the hemorrhaging has now gotten to a point where everybody's feeling the impact of the corruption, the mismanagement over the decades. And it's going to take us working, you and I, you know, because I think you you and I have talked to Fritz Kagey about this. We've talked to Samantha Steele. We've talked to George Cardenas about how do we revamp the system? How do we set it straight so that it actually works for everybody fairly and equally? And so that taxpayers have predictability and stability and what they know they're going to have to pay. So we really have to revamp this, this whole system. Um, and, and the first step, I think, for us you know, uh, we had a hearing where we invite, you, you mentioned a, a little earlier on, you know, maybe we can get the board of review to come before the city council. Well, we took the first step as the committee on finance, I, I think ever, and invited Fritz Kagey, the county assessor to come speak, um, you know, about, well, gosh, it was during COVID. So <laughs> it seems like ages ago, um, that pandemic really kind of stunted a lot of the work we wanted to do or took us in a different direction to deal with that. But um, I think working with Fritz, you know, we we heard from him and his staff about um, how assessments should work and the model that he's using through a study that uh, was done by a, a national agency. So just having Fritz Kagey come in and speak to the city council, I thought was amazing in itself. And I was all I did was ask him, hey, would you like to come to the city council and speak? And he jumped on it and I, and we're going to have him back. And I think we should have the BOR people there as well and figure out how we can at least end the corruption, the soft corruption, the mismanagement and gut out some of these players who've been manipulating the system and, and really put some good guidelines around how we uh, make these adjustments. But it's going to take a little bit of time because when you, again, when you have entities like the Burks and the Madigans in control for decades, um, it's hard to just completely pull the system out without everything falling down around it and hurting people further. Well, if I might, I just think what you said is so important. I know some of these things, you know, our, our listeners may roll their eyes, but you've got to keep in mind, at least from my experience, and I'm sure yours, what the anti-reformers want, what they always want is ways they, they can maintain their power. And the best way they can maintain their power is to give, to get money. And how do they get the money? They find schemes where everybody benefits but the taxpayers. Yeah. And the taxpayers don't realize, and that's exactly what's uh, what, what Scott is talking about here, remember, is it, what it's supposed to be is if, in fact, just like the national level, okay, um, 
and maybe not all Republicans, but Republicans generally don't want the IRS to have the investigators to make the multimillionaires and billionaires pay their fair share. Well, here, the Madigan, Berrios, Burke, and other forces, okay, um, try to reduce the amount that big commercial pays, and then little residential makes it up. I'll say, for example, a recent study, if in um, the Boyle Review, remember, if you don't like what the assessor did, and before Fritz Kage, they had both Berrios uh, helping them, then they had the Boyle Review. But uh, what happened in certain cases is, for example, uh, the Sun-Times reporter, the Board of Review cut assessments, excuse me, uh, cut assessment the old post office by 29%. That's below what Fritz had done. So in other words, Fritz did an assessment, the Board of Review, this old Board of Review before the new Samantha Steele and Cardenas was elected, they cut it by nearly 30% and Trump Tower they cut it by 31%. So what people have to understand is that means many millions of dollars, and this becomes annual, that should have been paid by a larger commercial interest are now being spread through all the small little <laughs> homeowners uh, in the county, okay? And um, in fact, if they had stayed with the assessments that the assessor had done, uh, taxes would have not been 52.8% the homeowner's burden, it would be 46.2%. That's tens and tens of millions of dollars. So I know it's kind of in the weeds, but I would suggest for people who want to see a brighter future for Chicago and Cook County, because this is both, this is an incredibly important reform. And that's why Scott mentioned, but I'm so pleased that we've kind of broken the border review open a little bit, not just the FBI, on uh, the stuff that they're uncovering, but the election of a blatant reformer named Samantha Steele and a former Alderman George Cardenas that already are making some changes. And we'll be doing more shows about that because this is really one of the most significant changes because it means millions of Cook County residents, or at least hundreds of thousands, are going to come out better in the long run. Uh, yeah, so it, it, and it, and again, it hurts in the in the short term because you're you're trying to fix all these problems that have taken decades to mess up. But that's why it also, you know, I I talk to David uh, quite often, and I think one of the issues was um, how do you break away from the machine too, and uh, you know, be straightforward. Cabanargi uh, was on the board of review, and um, it's hard to go up against the you know the party leadership at any time and say, what you're doing is wrong, it's corrupt, it's, uh, it's hurting taxpayers while you're doing, you know, you're showing one thing, but with the other hand, you're doing something else to them. And, and for me, stepping up against him in this last election, you know, as you did, uh, it's very difficult sometimes, but, but we did it. And now we have to look to that new person that's in and say, you know, Look, I did it when I became alderman. I was surrounded by the Daily Machine, the Madigan Machine, the Burke Machine, and I, I survived for all these years by being straight, hopefully straight as straightforward as possible, and telling people this is what damage corruption does to your day-to-day -day life. And I think we have to get behind people like Samantha, who's on that that board of review, and Fritz Kage, and say your job is extremely difficult. I get it, but you you've got to stay the course. 
and try to keep fixing these things. And in the long run, um, as much heat as you're going to take, it pays off. Okay, Scott, I think um, time-wise, we're going to have to um, move on. I want to thank you very much um, for being our, our first guest on this series relating to the municipal elections and some of the things we need to be looking at both 23 and beyond. And hopefully in the coming elections, there'll be people that share some of these views uh, who will be elected to office. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, Scott Wagesback, uh, Alderman of the 32nd Ward, Chairman of the Finance Committee, um, and a proud Peace Corps worker for many years. That's right. Scott has a great history. <laughs> I didn't want to take the time to discuss it all, but it's all, all geared toward public service. So we thank you very much, Scott. Thank you very much, Dave. Appreciate it as always. You bet. And, and finally, um, as we're leaving here, I want to give you a little kind of a historical note. Earlier, we talked about these mayoral elections. Um, and yet, I want people to know, particularly maybe the younger ones, that up until recently, for most of our Chicago history, since the 1830s, the way in which we elected mayors was called basically a, a primary a Democrat-Republican primary like we do for president and governor and all sorts of things. Uh, and there, of course, the um, person who got the most votes in Democratic primary, at least in the last several decades, would kind of automatically come on to beat the Republican nominee in the general election. But this was all changed um, when Richard M. Daley was elected in a special election in 1989. Uh, two years after Harold Washington's death, he sought a change which would eliminate the party primary and add this 50% plus one rule the same way we elect aldermen. Now, one might wonder uh, why the change was made and did it have anything to do with just recently the city of Chicago left electing its first black mayor? Um, I obviously believe that was the purpose uh, I had researched this thing. I was there at the time. Uh, all the people in charge of doing this petition process uh, were key uh, insiders uh, with Mayor Daley. Several of them went to jail for presenting false petitions on this. Uh, nearly all of them were rewarded once they got out. Um, and so the irony was, is what they were concerned about is Harold Washington won a Democratic primary with less than 50%. Remember, the city at that time was kind of maybe one-third Black, one-third White, one-third Latino. Uh, not exactly, but close to it. And um, in my humble opinion is that, again, these powerful politicians, they didn't want to see that happen again. Uh, and so, again, for, for Young Daly, you know, who won in 89, and he won in 91, and won in 95, won in 99, won in 103, 107, never having a serious black opposition. Now, uh, ironies in um, uh, history are often funny, you might say, because later on, partly because of something Mayor Daley did, there was a rump group of old machine folks that did, um, did in Bill Daley, who wanted to continue the Daley tradition uh, who ran for office in 2019. And because of a fascinating battle, that group took him out, which left the two finalists for the mayor election, both being African-American, uh, Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot. Uh, I mentioned that only because people often went, why are we doing it this way? We, what was wrong with what we did for 150 years or something? Um, and personally, I believe it was a blatantly racist move. 
Uh, they got away with it, but uh, that's always what we have to fight against. Uh, I do believe in the final note is that one of the things that reformers and progressives are talking about over and over again, much easier today than before, that every issue that comes before the council and others, they look at it, trying to make sure there's not racial injustices or inequities. Now, of course, we're a long way from being where we want to be, but the fact that people are doing that and concentrating on it and looking to see, we don't want to introduce policies uh, um, that are blatantly racist uh, or that create inequities. Uh, so we will continue with this in our, our series in the future. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks, Scott, uh, Scott Wagg is back for joining us, and we'll see you again on the radio. Bye-bye.